welcome to Podshipper. This is your host, Jared Blumenfeld. In the final months of the U.S. Civil War, hundreds of thousands of freed African-American slaves left their plantations to follow the victorious Union Army troops. General Sherman then issued Special Field Order Number 15, a radical plan granting each freed family 40 acres of land. This redistribution of more than 400,000 acres from Confederate slave owners to former black slaves was their key to future economic independence and autonomy. If this policy had been implemented, it would have positively reshaped our nation's history. Instead, as one of the first acts of Reconstruction, President Andrew Jackson ordered all land under federal control to be returned to its previous owners in the summer of 1865. The 40 acres and a mule policy never came to pass. Overcoming massive obstacles, black agriculture became a powerhouse in the early 1900s. In the 1920s, there were one million black farmers in America, and former slaves and their descendants had amassed 14 million acres of land. Then, in the last hundred years, 90% of that land was lost. Today, only 45,000 of the nation's 3.4 million farmers are black. By comparison, 95% of U.S. farmers are white. Today, the average farm size for a black farmer is 132 acres. That compares with 431 acres for white farmers. Today, black farmers who have managed to hold on to their farms make less than $40,000 annually, compared with over 190000 by white farmers. In 1997, 400 black farmers sued the U.S. Department of Agriculture in the landmark lawsuit Pigford v. Glickman, which alleged that they had been denied loans and other support because of rampant discrimination. In 1999, the government settled the case for $1 billion, and more than 16,000 black farmers received $50,000 each. But many farmers failed to submit requests because of the restrictive deadlines and the burdens of gathering documents. The settlement fell short of addressing the problems resulting from the discriminatory lending and the impact of systemic racism in agriculture, unfortunately, continues today. The total number of direct loans to black farmers fell by 50% between 2015 to 2020, and in a grant program meant to help farmers cope with the coronavirus pandemic, farmers of color received less than 1% of the payments, even though they're 5% of all U.S. farmers. In California, the picture is even worse. Of the state's 78,000 farmers, only 526 are run by black farm operators. I travel to Fresno County, where only 42 of the 5,600 farms reported African-American farmers. There, I meet with Will Scott Jr., who runs Scott Family Farms and is the president of the African-American Farmers of California, and with Shirley Rowe, a lifelong teacher who now runs an alfalfa farm in Lemoore, California. I start by asking Will Scott Jr. about his family's history with farming. 
My grandfather was a sharecropper, and my father sharecropped with him, so I got in on the tail end of it. But we left Oklahoma and came to California, and naturally we did uh, agricultural work to survive. I was told at early ages that you need to get education, get away from farming, you know, get you a good job so you can take care of your family. But I think that if it's in your DNA, if it's your mission, you'll come back to it. Actually, I went to high school, went to junior college, was drafted into the Vietnam War, came out, got married, and then I bought five acres to build my dream home. In 1994, I went into farming full-time. And, I, you know, and I, I really enjoyed it because I think it's a, it's a spiritual thing to me, you know, is that you can take something, put it in the ground, you know, and then you put the right moisture and the temperature, it comes alive. So, you know, it's, it's kind of you know, lifted me up, and that's why I gets back into it. And then to help people, whatever you grow, to help people to enjoy it. You know, and then uh, thank you for what you do. Do you have memories of what it was like in Oklahoma before you moved to California? And what is a sharecropper? To me, and in a lot of instances, too, is it, to me, it's, it's, uh, it's also slavery. You know, my ancestors, you know, they were slaves. Uh, the next step of when they was uh, emancipated, uh, most of them went back to it uh, to farming as far as surviving, and they they were sharecroppers. But I never heard the word sharecropper until I came to California because back there my grandfather told me that we was working on the halves. That means that the man who owned the land, whatever was grown on the land, he gets half of it, you know, and that's that's what I understood about it. But I think that also when I say slavery too is that usually if you sharecrop, you had a tab at the, at the uh, country store, you know, and some people never got off that tab because either they was uh, uneducated and, you know, and they didn't question, you know, when do uh, it, it's paid off, you know. He told my, my grandfather, my grandfather's name was Amos, he said, Amos, he said, you almost got off of, uh, the tab. He said, if you have another good year like this, he said, you'll be able to get off the tab. You know, and I looked at my grandfather, you know, because you know, to see what he's going to do, you know. And my grandfather said, well, I guess we, we got to do it one more year. And I told my grandfather, I said, well, he owes you some money. Two weeks later, we, we was off this man land. We was off out of the sharecropping business, you know. And then in uh, 1945, I had an uncle that fought in the war. You know, he was in the Army. He fought in the Battle of the Budge, and he said he was going to California. A couple of years later, my father, he went to California, and he uh, worked up in, uh, enough money, and he, he uh, sent for us when we came to California in August of 1952. What was it like those first years? I mean, beginning farming is not easy. Five acres, I took the five acres, and uh, I planted it all in uh, those uh, red onions, sweet red onions. And I had, I figured, what I was told that I was going to make $12 a box. So looking at it, I figured I was going to make at least fifty or $60,000. Well, as it turned out, I took it into one of these brokers, and I was supposed to get $12 a box. But a week later, he gave me uh, $5.60 a box. It really took me for a loop because I figured out what it cost me. almost cost me $6, you know, a box to, to grow it, you know. So I learned a lesson, and I also learned how to eat onions. I guess you call it beginner's luck is that the onions I had was, they was really sweet. 
And people like that, you know, they like onions that uh, it was sweet. I tried to get into the farmer's markets. I couldn't get into it. Mm. Why even, not? What, yeah. was the, what was the challenge? Prejudice. Mm. You know, even though uh, I saw no one in the, at the market who was selling what I was growing, because tradition, I grow ethnic food, you know, black-eyed peas, okra, and stuff like that. I, I saw none. No vendors had it. But as it is, things are really turning around because now is that I get calls, you know, every week wanting the black farmers to come into their market. But in the early days, people just didn't want you to come to the farmers market. Exactly. Yeah, they didn't want me into the into the program, you know. And that's that's the sad thing about it. And I think that's some of the things that a black farmer had to endure, especially in California. At what point did you realize that you wanted to create an association to help other black farmers? Well, at that time, too, is that if you were to ask someone, are there any black farmers in California, they would have told you no. You know, and they would have been uh, correct to a certain extent. Even today is that we make up uh, less than a half a percent, you know, out of the you know eighty to 100,000 farmers the African-American farmers uh, comprises maybe uh, a little over 500. It's kind of dismal, you know, for people who actually were the farmers in this country. We, you know, it, our labor is what built this country, really. I, I tell people, too, is that it, there's a saying is that without slaves, there'd be no slavery. Without slavery, there'd be no cotton. Without cotton, there'd be no industrial revolution. And without the industrial revolution, the United States would just be another third world European colony, you know. So, you know, African-Americans played a tremendous part in, in the advancement of this country thing. And that's the thing that I'm dealing with now is they're trying to get young blacks into farming because of the slave uh, legacy that's involved in it, you know. But now we don't say farming, we say agriculture because agriculture comprises a whole area in, involved, say pest management, also uh, checking the uh, you know the condition of my soil, or taking those drone planes and flying over my property, you know, and giving me a assessment of what I need, you know. So there's different areas of agriculture we can get young people into it because they they are highly intelligent, but they don't have the history, and that's where I come in at as far as giving the history. So Shelley, you you were a teacher most of your life. Yes. And uh, ha- how did you get it in your mind that after teaching, which is a pretty demanding profession, you didn't, you know, kick up your feet. You decided I'm gonna I'm gonna get into farming. Oh well, I guess I I was born because my parents were farmers. We had a dairy, and then we learned how to I learned how to milk cows by hand. That's when everything was done by hand. But I grew up on the farm with the same farm that I'm farming now. And where is that, Shirley? Lee Moore. My parents uh, purchased the land 78 years ago because I was born there. My dad was a well driller. You know, I just grew up in that environment. We'd can, we'd glean the fields and pick up everything, uh, old pota- the old potatoes and stuff for the hogs. We'd collect. <laughs> in the country, when I grew up, we collected everything that was out there. And we used it. All the corns, after they had burned the cornfields, we'd go and we'd pick up the corn cobs and we'd stack them up. Well, I remember being a little bitty kid, and that was my job, to take the kernels 
off this hard corn cob, and then you would put it in the machine, and you would grind it up, and then you'd feed the chickens. Because as a farmer's child, you always had a job. We grew up in a very, very loving, warm family. I had a lot of cousins down in the Lemoore area. Uh, almost all of us had dairies, cows, not, not a big dairy, but everything was done by hand. Um, we were always together. And how did your parents end up in Lemoore, Shirley? Like, what, uh, where were they before they bought it 70 years ago? My father was born in Fresno, outskirts of Fresno. My mother was born in Los Angeles. All my relatives were farmers. Basically, we were all country people. Everybody that I knew, we didn't get to go too many places. Everything was around the farm, based around the farm and the relatives and the family because uh, you didn't travel. We worked every day, but we had a lot of fun. We ate good. We had a lot of fun. And you, th you, you th kind of thought that's what life was all about. Because the rest of the people in the neighborhood, they were all farmers. Growing up, did you think, oh, farming is a life I want to continue? Or, like, how did you make the decision to go into teaching? When I was a kid, I wasn't even thinking about the future. What really changed my life, because I fell in love. I graduated from high school. I got married. And then when I moved to Fresno about a year, about well, six months later, because my ex-husband was in the still in the Navy. But then when he got out, I moved to Fresno, and uh, the decision was made that he's going to go to college, he's going to finish college, and then I'm going to go to college. So that's what happened. You know, in that uh, span of probably four years, I had two children, and then he was graduating, and he said, you're going to college. <laughs> and I said, great. So I became a volunteer at the school with my oldest daughter. I started uh, as an aide, and then uh, the vice principal or the child psychologist or something said, uh, you know, you need to get that baby off your hip. And he encouraged me to go to college also. He said, you should go to college. And they were sending minority uh, individuals to college. You work a half a day, you go to college half a day. I said, hey, this makes pretty good sense. So I started going to college. And then as I was working with this teacher one day, I think I was doing all the work. And I said, you know, I better get my, I need to get my credential. So that's how I finished up. Went, went all night school to City College, graduated. Then I went to Fresno State graduated, got my credential, then I went to Pepperdine and got my master's and my administrative credential. Incredible. So I just had a good time. I mean, yeah. I always had fun. <laughs> but my little kids, I was dragging my kids around, everybody else's kids. I just had a wonderful career, loved teaching, worked for the district for 40 years, and then I retired, and then I traveled, and, you know, I always traveled, and I went on a a long cruise to did Thailand, Vietnam, China, Laos, and stuff. But I had traveled all over. I went to Europe and stuff. I said, you know, I think I'm going to go back to farming. I think I'm going to go back to the ranch because I inherited the ranch, you know, down there in Lee Moore. 
Did you, of all those cousins and relatives that you had in different parts of Lemoore and Fresno, were there people that were continuing to farm over that period that you kept in contact with, or like had most people got out of farming by that time? I still have cousins down there that farm, but most of them went on to college, become lawyers, doctors, whatever, but they still like the country. You know, mm. they, you know, we all always gather at the country. I wanted to go back to it because it's just peaceful. It's peaceful. It's not that not like rat race in town, the sirens going, the helicopters going over. It's just peaceful. I just wanted to go out in the country. And uh, that's what I did. I built me a little house, and and I love it. <laughs> so what? tell us what your day looks like. I get up early. I go to bed early. So what time do you get up? Oh, probably around 6, 5.36. I'm ready to go water. And I just water. I go check my hummingbirds. I go around chopping weeds because I grow alfalfa at the farm. I clean up around the pumps where the irrigation pumps are and everything. Uh, but you I have a good source of water? Well, yeah, so far. So far, I have two wells. I have two ag wells, and it's a good house well. As the water's lousy. You know, it's much deeper. The house well is much deeper than the ag wells, but the ag wells water much better. So uh, I grow it all around me on uh, two sides of me. I have almonds. The neighbor has almonds. One side, the other side, it's cotton. I uh, hire out to do the cutting and the baling and all that with the hay. And what's been the biggest challenge like that you didn't remember or was less romantic or less, less idyllic than your childhood when you're like, wow, I can't believe I got back into farming? The expense. Uh, when I went back, the neighbor had ran his water line into mine, and, you know, he didn't use my pumps. He was growing corn or something, and somebody hit one of my wells and messed up one of my wells. But anyway, I had to drill a well. The land wasn't level, so I had to have him come in and laser it. cost me a fortune. Then we got truckloads and truckloads of gypsum in, and then they had to go in and break up the soil and spread it out. That's a big, big expense for a farmer to have all that done. But luckily, I saved quite a bit of money because I'm real. They always say I'm real country. I got the first dime I ever made. I said, I probably do. And uh, no, they say, that's what they say about, you know, country yeah, yeah. folks. They yeah, always say. It's, it's true, you know. Yeah. yeah. My mother always said, make a dollar, save a dime. And I still live by that. You still got relatives who come and help oh, you. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. It's, uh, you always help. You all, everybody, you better help. We have a lot of people that's, uh, you know, wants to volunteer and come to the farms, you know, and help out. I have people that's coming and helping me now, and that's uh, it's kind of like a godsend because, you know, we have uh, we are under attack with weeds. We're getting you know, a few uh, black youth. They want to come back, you know, because they, they they begin to take a little pride in, in their ancestors, what they went through, you know. So they're, they're coming back. Young people don't have the money to go out and purchase land, you know, because. Uh, 
most land will go easy 20,000 an acre. So you really can't make any money unless you buy a large amount of acreage or you have your your career on one side and you're a weekend farmer. With the price of land and the price to drill a well and the well and the water problem down in, you know, here in the San Joaquin Valley, uh, it's very, very difficult for individuals. It's almost cost prohibitive for, for young people to get into farming, you know, so that's why... And uh, the African-American farmers, you know, we try to, we've tried looking for ways that we can get young people into it. You know, we have a demonstration site that we take them through the training. The Lending Institution has to be more friendly to people of color, you know, and that's how we're going to be able to get young people in. But also, too, is that the government has land, too. They can also make available, you know, for these young people to get into farming. So it should be available to them because someone has to replace me. So, but the young people, especially African-Americans, that they stay as far away from farming as possible because of the uh, connotation with with slavery, Mm. you know. But now they realize, too, is that, you know, this world is, uh, we worship money. Enough is not enough. But these kids, they, they, they are interested in the bottom line, cannot make money. We have to show them that you can make money if you use your technology and your brain that you have you could come up with a niche crop because we have to eat, you know, and there's money to be made in this food business, you know. So, and that's how we have to bring young people in. And like I said, what Shirley has, the main thing is to hold on to the property too, go somewhere down the line, someone's going to come back, you know, and take over and do that. Down in the So I was reading that in 1920, there are a million black farmers in the United States, and now there's 42,000. Like, what happened in that in that period of 100 years? Well, after the Emancipation Proclamation, when they were freed, is that, you know, a lot of them, like I said, is that you can imagine freeing that many people with no, no one to assist them, and a lot of them went back to to where they came from. And that's why, like I say, you go back to sharecropping or you go back into slavery, really. At that one time, it'd be operated by 15 million acres of property. Well, when they started, uh, they had that field order 15 where Sherman gave the blacks was supposed to get 40 acres and a mule. Well, a few of them got it, but then the Southern whites took it from the only passed all the Jim Crow laws, and then that you couldn't own property. So they, you know, they more or less took it from them. And we've been losing land ever since. You know, in California, it's kind of dismal for to not have more black farmers into the food production business. You know, we hope to, you know, turn that around. You know, uh, farming to me is it's a spiritual thing because if you know your scripture, you know, too, is that when they <laughs> kicked this guy Adam out of Eden, you know, that he was told he's going to have to go back from where he, he got to get his living from where he came from. That's from the dirt, you know. And But the, 
like I said, that that's something that's really, I guess, give you peace and serenity. We have uh, evolved into a chemical world. We think that chemical can solve everything, but you realize, too, is that chemicals also has uh, side effects. But those who are eating healthier, you know, plants and stuff like that, these people, you know, uh, uh, their immune system is strong. They can kind of combat anything that comes into your environment. Like I said, we don't have that many black farmers, but those who are in it are really sincere about it. You know, they want to really play a part into this food production business. It just sounds like such such an important thing to, to help people return to the land that want to. And it feels like in California there's pretty big challenges around the cost of the land and the water and like helping people get back to the land that want to feels like a really important thing to do. It is. It's a real important thing to do, but the cost factor, I didn't want to go in debt, you know, country, you know, you don't, you want to pay for everything. You don't want to be in debt uh, to a large uh, extent. What about leasing it? Shirley or Will, like, is leasing the first step that you'd encourage people to do? I would to, to start off with because you have yeah. to lease it because, yeah, I mean, you can't. That's what I say, too. You should find uh, someone to lease it to them, you know, so that they can keep it in production. And that's just why I say the government should get involved because the government has a lot of land that they can lease to people, you know, especially young people. You know, I believe in diversification, like California is the most diverse state that I know of. You know, when we work together, that's what makes us strong. Matter of fact, that's what made the United States strong because of our diversity. Each culture that was in this country contributed to the advancement of this country. Also, too, is that get back to the food system, too. Is we also need a lot of people who are growing vegetables because you can just only eat so many almonds, you know. So we need to uh, kind of make sure that we have, some, uh, you know, uh, uh, to me, uh, equity in it as, as far as being able to have a choice over the food we eat. Because of our diversity, we have um, over 400 some different type crops that we can pick from, you know, which is, you know, which is good, you know, because then you have a way of selecting things that are really good for your system. So that promise that was made by the government of 40 acres, did you feel like that should still, is that something that could still come to pass today? Like there's a whole discussion about reparations, but the promise of 40 acres was made and never really met. And this is me personal, is that when you talk about reparation, you know, how do you put a money value on that? You know, really, uh, what has happened to the black American in this country? Yeah, I don't think you can really put a, a, a money value on it. Uh, having said that, the 40 eggs and a mule, you know, that would have been a tremendous start for a lot of people who had nothing. You know, they could have built from that. And some some did build, build from it. So I have some people in my organization that the, the land, they, the 40 acres they got, you know, they still have it. You know, matter of fact, they even have more land, you know. But I think today is that we talk about reparation. We talk about the Black Farmer Justice Act that they put it put into effect, you know, is that it, it really scares a lot of people because you, you they think that you're giving people something for nothing. In reality, it is it's kind of way of, saying that, okay, hey, there are some things that happened to you that maybe we should uh, try to maybe go back and undo some of that. Not un, you know, well, in a sense, do, undo it. You know, you try to make sure that 
we can come back and those things that you've been denied, uh, denied or being denied, that it's going to be accessible to you. It's like, uh, you know, having access to capital. You know, we should have the uh, access to capital and we should not have to pay no, no higher interest and we should not be denied. Matter of fact, you can, you can, like I say, reparation, you can't even pay these people for what they have been denied all these years. And, and actually, you know, uh, be totally fair about it. And the term disadvantage, I don't like that term. You know, I, I, I'm kind of at ease with saying underserved. You know, I, I like that term. But when you say somebody is disadvantaged, 100 years from now is that that same person is disadvantaged. We have to be careful how we put a name on something, how we define it. Because, like I say, is that if you uh, say I'm a savage, then that's like giving you the rights to treat me in a savage way. If you say I'm disadvantaged, that means that you know you put me in a position where I'll always need to be helped. Because all I want to do is just an opportunity. Equity is what we're seeking. You know, it's kind of like this water issue. Man don't make water. But man was put uh, as a conservative over this earth. He's supposed to take what, what God has given us, and he's supposed to share it, distribute accordingly. And anything that uh, man doesn't make, I don't think he has a right to say he owned it. We're supposed to be helping one another. We're supposed to love one another. I'm kind of excited now, too, because it looks like we have had this, through this pandemic, we had a chance to kind of reflect on some things. I have uh, people who are contacting me as now who wants to come out and actually uh, participate in something where we can try to make things where it's equitable to, for everybody. But I've met some some really good people who have the same same spirit in me. You know, since I've been president of African American Farmers, I've met some people who have really helped me. You know, inspired me. You know, it really helped us to really get into the into the the flow of things. Mm. And like I said, now when you have an entity like Stanford saying that they're looking at it and say, we'd like to help some of the black farmers, that's a tremendous statement. That, t- that says something to me, is that there actually are people out there that has a heart and they want to, you know, actually help those who are underserved. You know, that really all they need is just an opportunity. If you say that blacks have made a tremendous strive in this country, and that's true to a certain extent. But racism and greed has made even more strides. One of my fears is the water situation. Mm, tell me about Cause, that. Because without water, we're, we're, hey, we, you can't do anything. Man cannot live without water. Animals, plants, nothing can live without water. And I was reading an article recently about Corcoran and how it's actually shrinking down two, four, six feet, and they're, they're drilling deeper, 2,500-foot wells, costing you half a million dollars or so. What's going to happen? And they just keep planting more and more almonds, more and more farmland. Where I grew up out there in the island district, when I was a kid, the backside of our property was a forest. You know, it wasn't even under cultivation yet. And you look at now and you could look for miles and miles and miles and you just see no more forest, no more 
nothing. You know, animals running around, a lot of rabbits, a lot of pheasants, you know, a lot of, and, and there's nothing left. It's farmland and no water. You look at the rivers, they're all dried up. You know, people can't afford the water bills in town. And it, it, it's really, in a sense to me, scary. I think our values are really screwed up. Yeah, I look at the kids, and they're sitting at the, at the table, and they're not communicating eye to eye. They're texting each other. Where do you get the smiles in their eyes? And If you look at people and, and the way people, the relationships kids have with their families, they don't even want to hug their families. I look at the high rate of mental illness that's happening in the world, uh, substance abuse, the homeless issue. I mean, it's hard to, when you're teaching a kid and he's homeless, sleeping in the car and this, that, and another, you know. And a lot of things, we look at, oh, the big house, the big this, the big that. I don't see, I don't see it. Farming is a, it's a simple way. Maybe it's a, an escape for me. I look at my little alfalfa fields, and uh, it's not the, you, you drive on the freeway, or you drive and you see all those homeless people, and I think about the health issues. Where are they going to the bathroom? Where are they bathing? What kind of food are they eating? I, I ask myself, what's happening to our world? And it's kind of frightening for me. I grew up without a lot of, money, but, you know, I had a lot of love and I had a lot of laughter and stuff. Look at people when you go to, and I tell people, look at people when you go to the stores. Just look at their face. Oh, yeah, they might have their hair all done good and all dressed up, but just look at them they're like they're empty. My dad always said, Always smile and say hello to people because you don't know what that person's going through. Just say hi. You don't have to know them. You don't have to put them in your pocket and take them home, but just say hi to them. You don't know what that means to people. I think us as human beings, we need to get in, you know, like you said, racism, the love, the warmth, the, the caring. That means so much to have a hug, you know, for, for kids. I think we're going to have to quit judging people and just kind of ask yourself, what can I do to help that individual? Just smile. What's really important to you? What makes you feel good? You notice that a lot of people, we're on a quest to get money because we live in a world where we worship money mm -hmm. because money is supposed to bring us happiness. In reality, it is, it's, it's kind of like People who own drugs, you know, it, it does bring you happiness for five minutes. Mm -hmm. But then you got to do it over and over again. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But also you find out, too, you got money, too, is that there's certain things money can't buy for you. I like farming, you know, because I met some really tremendous people. that, And when you meet people who have the same spirit as you, you know, it brings you a certain amount of peace. A huge thank you to Will Scott Jr. and Shirley Rowe for talking with Podger Perth today. The stories they shared are a bridge to a past when African-American farmers were flourishing, a time when small family farms were viable, 
when growing food was seen as the essential and honorable profession it remains. The work that Will and Shirley are doing to keep the flame alive is critical because it grounds us in who we are and reminds us of how real and deep the roots of systemic racism in California and the nation really are. Access to both land and capital have been shut off to black farmers in our country for decades. Five billion was included in the stimulus to help farmers of color, but how those funds will be distributed remains to be seen. Today's episode focused on the huge race-based disparities that exist within farm ownership and operation. Unfortunately, when it comes to the treatment of farm workers, human trafficking, forced labor, and debt bondage are still happening. Temporary immigrant workers, especially those who work in the fields, are highly susceptible to exploitation by labor contractors and land owners. Re-establishing our connection to farmers through the food they produce and we eat is one critical way to help. Supporting locally grown agriculture from farmers of color is going to take a little more effort, but once you've tried Will Scott black-eyed peas and okra, your soul will never look back. Thank you each so much for being part of the Podship Earth journey. From the entire Podship Earth crew, sound engineer Rob Spate, executive producer David Kahn, and from me, Jared Blumenfeld, we are what we eat. We are what we eat.